Hey, give the band a hand if you would, please. <clears throat> Welcome uh, to Sierra Bible Church. My name is Jesse, and if you're new here, we just want to say thank you for coming. We're, we're uh, glad to have you, and uh, we've been praying for people to visit and be part of our church. And so if you're exploring Christianity and you're trying to figure out what Jesus is all about, or maybe somebody loved you enough to invite you, we just want to recognize that you're here, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, and what we uh, are doing now for our visitors is if you go to the info booth and you want to know more about our church, just let them know that you're here, that you're new, and we'll give you a visitor packet that you can fill out, lets us know a little bit about yourself. And then we give you a gift, we give you some uh, free coffee, and then uh, we give you a book that we really like. And so if you want that free gift, just go ahead and, and head out there. But again, we're, we're glad that you're here with us. And we're in a series right now where we're studying uh, the book of Ruth. And so if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Ruth. If you have a digital Bible, that's okay too. You can turn there on your phone or your tablet. Just don't go to Facebook or Instagram while you're in service because then Jesus will get you. Uh, and then if you want a Bible and you don't have one, just raise your hand and one of the guys would gladly put one in your hand and just keep your hand raised and you can follow along with us. Before we get into Ruth, However, I just want to highlight a couple things. One is uh, uh, typically we do what we call our missions moment. And this is a time where we allow one of our missionaries to come up and share what they're doing and what they're up to. Uh, we also um, will share our missionaries who aren't here. We'll give an update there. And this morning, I've got Jeff Gilpin here with us. He is our Awana ministry, uh, um, I'm sorry, our, our Awana's missionary. And he helps plant Awana programs, which is a program which helps kids uh, study the Bible, memorize the Bible. And he helps plant these programs and churches all over Northern California and then Nevada. And so if you would, would you just give Jeff a warm welcome as he shares a little bit of what he's been up to? All right, buddy. Hey, good morning. Um, so my wife and I, uh, we are the Wana missionaries, and uh, we've actually been members here since 1995. And it's kind of weird, as I, I was telling Jesse the other day, I look around the church, I don't hardly recognize anybody anymore. The church is just growing and changing. And, and uh, so anyways, um, so yeah, I'm the Iwana missionary. And just so, for those of you who don't know, if you look around this, the floor here, there's a Iwana game circle on the floor. Iwana is a ministry that started uh, almost 70 years ago uh, with a guy in Chicago who had a real passion for kids and how do we get kids into the church and that kind of thing. And so they started at their church, Northside Gospel Center. It grew to Illinois, grew to the Midwest. Uh, make a long story short, 70 years later, we're in 120 different countries evangelizing and discipling um, four and a half million kids a week. So it's a huge uh, international ministry. The area that I serve, um, the state of Nevada, the eastern Sierra, California, like Tahoe, all the way down to Bishop, and then northern Arizona, uh, in, in my area, 700,000 children under the age of 18. And we're probably reaching about three or 4,000 of them. So it's a huge, huge, unreached population. Uh, and you think about what the kids are facing nowadays with divorce and on and on and on. It's a very needed ministry. Um, in addition to that, I oversee a team of four other missionaries. Um, so I have a, uh, I'm responsible for the ministry in Alaska, Utah, North and West Texas. And then every once in a while we go down to Mexico with Travis and do some stuff down there. Uh, my ministry, I meet with churches, uh, talk to them about their children, child discipleship, meet with mega churches, 
uh, meet with small church, you know, meet one day with a pastor of a church of three or 4,000, and the next day meet with a pastor of a church of 10, you know, pastors up in uh, north of the Arctic Circle in Alaska, uh, met with Navajo pastors, met a couple of years ago, I had a chance to speak to about 30 or 40 pastors in the Dominican Republic. Uh, not too long ago, I met with some a group of Chinese pastors. They're in Las Vegas, there's a um, 200,000 Chinese Americans. So the church there is really nervous about the, the, the adults are, speak Mandarin. The kids don't speak Mandarin. They have to do the services in Mandarin. They're worried they're gonna, the kids are going to lose their faith. So meet with uh, pa- uh, churches, talk to pastors about child discipleship, sometimes about that, sometimes about church health issues, sometimes about their own, uh, just their own walk with the Lord. Just for those of you who don't know, as a, as a group, I hope my okay is hearing this, as a group, pastors are very lonely people. And it's, it's the truth. They, are, they can't be themselves. They have to be a pastor. And so, like, who's shepherding the shepherds? And so part of my ministry is meet with pastors and not really offer anything other than just listen to them and, and hear what they have to say and, and just be there for them. So I do that. We start new clubs, train leaders. The most important thing I do, though, in my view, is advocate for kids. That God, you know, a lot of places I go, kid, children are, in some places children are bother. Some churches, children, that's the view that children are bother. Some places children are viewed, or children's ministry is viewed as, how do we keep the kids busy while the adults do the quote-unquote real ministry? The, the thing about that, though, is the statistics you read, anywhere between 80 and 90% of salvation decisions are made by people under the age of 14. So if you think about that demographic of 700,000 children, if we don't reach them by the time they're 14, there's a 90% chance they're on their way to hell. So it's a, it's a, so uh, we talked to them about that. Some places uh, children are viewed as um, a tool to bring the parents in. Instead of, so to, to talk to pastors and churches that children have value, their souls worthy of saving in and of themselves. So that's uh, just a little bit of kind of what we do. And uh, the reason Jesse asked me to come up here, you guys are part of that. And uh, there's several here that support us individually. The church supports us as a, as a group. And uh, so we're kind of an extension of Sierra Bible Church, that this church is out in Alaska and Navajo Res and uh, Nevada and Las Vegas and all these different places. And I just want you to know you're a part of that. And I thank you for that. And uh, uh, we're just glad to be able to serve. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks, man. So Jeff comes back from visiting with all these pastors, like he said, and, and he sits and he ministers to pastors, except for at his home church. He comes back and tells me how to do a better job. And so really thankful for, for that. Um, so how, how many kids did you say uh, within Awana? 20, 21,000 within Awana programs amongst his team. So your, through your generosity and your giving, you are helping impact 21,000 kids in those areas for Jesus. And so um, thank you for that. And we just wanted to share some of those things with you so you could be encouraged at, at what God's doing through our church. A couple other things I just want to highlight. If you have your program, one is piggybacking off of what uh, Jeff just shared. Um, the old Awana director, Paul Zerubin, is going to be facilitating on May 31st and June 1st uh, an evening and a day program for helping equip parents and parenting. So if you're, if you're a parent and, and you feel like you could use some help and some equipping, this will be a great time for you. We're going to feed you. We're going to pour into you. 
We're going to bless you. We're going to encourage you. And so if that's something uh, that you could take part in, just sign up out here at the info booth, same place where any newcomer can, can get information and put their, uh, their information there. And then uh, lastly, you'll notice on the bottom, my wife is going to be kickstarting a new study on Wednesday nights uh, starting at the, I think it's the end of uh, uh, June. It, it should be in your program there, the 26th. I have it written down here, June 26th, 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. I just want to share with you, like, my wife, Whenever she teaches and someone in the church hasn't heard her teach yet, they will come and find me and they will say, your wife is an incredible teacher. And is that not true for ladies? Have you, have you heard her? You, you can, okay, so it's not just ow-ow is right. Mm-hmm. It's not just me saying it. She's an incredible teacher. In fact, one of the things that's really incredible about our church is because we have so many different Bible studies and community groups going on, we have other, other individuals from other churches who like to participate and our Bible studies, and we just think that's great, that people can come here from the community and learn about the Lord. And a gal who got saved just a couple years ago, she attends another church. She's got three kids, and after hearing Allie teach several times, she said, she said, uh, hey, Allie, I'd like to meet with you. I want to have an appointment with you and just get together and have lunch. And so she met with this individual, and the reason she met with her is she said, <clears throat> I need to know how in the world— is someone like you know as much of the Bible as you know, considering you never grew up in church? So her question was this. Her question was, how do you have the knowledge that you have and you didn't grow up in a Christian home? So you may not know that, but my wife did not grow up in a Christian home, and she has a tremendous understanding of the Bible. And this, this young gal who had only been saved for two years wanted to know, basically what she was asking, is it possible for someone like me who's never grown up in church to know as much about Jesus as you know? And, of course, my wife emphatically said, yes, it is. And we're all growing, okay? None of us have it all together. And so if you're somebody that, that uh, if you're a woman, first of all, and you, you want to go to a study where you can learn and grow and you're not going to be judged for your lack of knowledge or your lack of ability, this is a great study for you and want to encourage you uh, to come and learn more about Jesus Christ. Amen? Um, so this morning, I'm going to give just a little bit of a backdrop uh, in regards to the book of Ruth. So if you haven't been here for a little while, or if you're, you're new here, again, we just want to catch you up on what's happened so far in this book. It's an Old Testament book, and we come across a couple, a married couple, that's an Israelite, an Israelite couple. They're from the place of Bethlehem. There's a famine, and this couple that's married, her, the names are Elimelech, that's the husband, uh, and Naomi, and they move to Moab, which is a pagan city, in hopes to escape the famine. But really what they're doing is they're moving away from God. And since they've moved away from God and not toward God in their time of trouble, more trouble followed. And there was death in the family. Elimelech dies. Uh, and then they had two sons, and the two sons married Moabite women, which they weren't supposed to do because they weren't Israelite women. And uh, you end up now with those husbands dying and two widows and then after 10 years of famine and tragedy, Naomi takes Ruth and moves back to Bethlehem, back to God's city. And the other daughter-in-law, her name was Orpah, she decides to do the logical thing, the thing that doesn't require a whole lot of faith, go back to her homeland and hopefully find a husband that, that she'll marry and have children with. Now, Ruth, on the other hand, she goes back to Bethlehem. It's a big deal and if you remember in the book, so far we, we have seen that whenever Ruth is mentioned, the fact that she's a Moabite is mentioned as well. We don't have time to read all the text there, 
But if you just did a, a brief survey of every time Ruth's name is mentioned in chapters 1 and some of chapter 2, you'll notice that it says, Ruth the Moabite woman, Ruth the Moabite woman. And the reason that's important is because the, the author is, is, is not just being redundant for redundancy. sake. The author's trying to j- drive home the reality of the racial tension that is existing within the relationship that Ruth has within Bethlehem. She's a Moabite. She's an outsider. She's not to be accepted within Israel. And, and you'll see as she comes in, Boaz, who she happens to come across, will say, stay in my field so that you will not be raped, so that you won't be beaten, and then you won't be taken advantage of. So there's great racial tension in this. And the reason this is important is because uh, I've titled the message this morning, if you're a note taker, um, uh, I've titled it Ruth, apparently, Finding Hope, Love, and Redemption. There we go. Um, Becoming family. So what I want you to, <clears throat> what, I, what I want you to understand this morning in regards to where we're going in the message is what it kind of takes for someone to move from being outside of the family of God into the family of God. And we see that Ruth takes this journey be, before us. And, and you'll take note now, right? If you remember, it says that Ruth, by chance, chanced upon the field of Boaz. It's the author's way of saying, look, listen, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. So she chanced by chance. That's what's said in chapter 2, to come upon the field of Boaz. The way it's worded in the Hebrew is to make you as the reader go, there's no such thing as good luck. The author's making a joke. She chanced by chance. No, 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 no. He's literally saying that God, behind the scenes of normal things, normal activity, basic human interaction, God is at work behind the scenes. Now, can I just share with you as a church and hopefully comfort you as an individual that no matter how common your life may feel, no matter what decisions that you're going through, no matter what it is that you're wrestling with, whether it's a move or a relationship or finances, whether it's a hard thing or a really good thing, whether it's a blessed thing or something that's really difficult, that God is behind the scenes in his sovereignty working it out for your good and his ultimate glory. Amen? That's such good news. And, and, and we see this in the book. The author's letting us know there's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as accident. There's no such thing as good luck. As Proverbs says, man plans his way, but God directs his footsteps. I got a feeling there's probably a couple of you out here this morning, you've gone through something hard and you're wondering, God, why would you do this? And I just want you to know, God knows what he's doing. Don't lose faith and don't lose hope. Uh, Now, we have a tradition here uh, in our church to honor God's word. We care deeply about it. We believe that what is here are witnesses, individuals who've actually seen Jesus live. They saw Jesus die, and they saw him resurrected from the dead. This is living and active stuff, and this is God's word. And our tradition is to stand for the reading of Scripture, to honor it. So, If you're able to this morning, would you humor me and please stand as we read from Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 10 to the end of the chapter. After Boaz has blessed Ruth in the field, remember now she is gleaning, she is poor, and God has made provision for the poor to basically take the leftovers home And in this process, it's kind of like somebody digging in the trash can for aluminum cans that they would be able to provide for themselves. So Ruth has been given permission by Boaz to reap within the field, and this is what she says in response to his favor. 
Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some of the bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it to her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over from being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her, Daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Lord, we ask this morning you would minister to us, mold us, shape us, and be with us, Lord. And we trust you for that work. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so this book, right, it, it is considered literally, even by those who would consider themselves secular, those who don't believe in God, that this is one of the most incredible love stories in all of literature. We have before us, I, I actually told uh, the first service, and, and I'm going to have to save some of what I want to share with you till next week. I, I, it's one of those Sundays where I had more material than necessary, and, and, and I had said that really I could have titled this uh, Becoming Family, but, but if, if this was a group of singles, there's enough here for me to have titled the message Good Dating Tips by Boaz. Um, <laughs> But knowing that that doesn't fit all of the audience here this morning, I figured the better overarching theme to tease out of this would be what it takes for the church to understand its role in helping people who don't know Jesus to become a part of the family of Jesus Christ. Because essentially this is exactly what happens for Ruth. Boaz is a godly man. We can see that. He walks into the field. He says hello to his workers in a godly way, a greeting of Yahweh. They respond with honor and respect likewise. Now, remember, remember the, the law said that, that really Ruth, as a poor person, all she was really entitled to, and not all the Jews practiced this, was basically the, the food that fell out of the bundles. So the workers would walk through the field, and they'd put the wheat, the barley, into like a sack. And sometimes, uh, every now and then, some of it would fall out. And that which fell out, the poor person could come and gather it. And we see that, that Boaz is such a godly guy. He goes beyond the law into the area of grace. And he says to his workers, listen, guys, not only, not only do I want you to allow her to do this, but I, every now and then I want you to reach into your bundle. And I want you to give some to her. 
In addition to that, we see that Boaz is so gracious. He does, he does something that is really taboo. He takes Ruth, he sits her down, and he feeds her at mealtime. And she finds this incredible favor from God. And she sees that in Boaz, she's found this favor. So we have to understand something about Boaz. Boaz is foreshadowing for us God the Father in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the better Boaz. So we do ourselves a disservice if we don't look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus Christ inside the story of Boaz. So when you see characteristics in Boaz, you have to also place those characteristics perfectly inside of Jesus as well because it pushes us towards our own redemption. That's why uh, Naomi says he's one of our redeemers. And yeah, he's just a redeemer, but but he's pointing us to the ultimate redeemer, the one who will purchase us from our sin, take us away from our agony, from our self-destruction. And so, so we see here that she has this response. She says, why have I found favor? Why have I found favor? She's ask, actually asking the question, for as Boaz brings her into dinner time, as we saw in the text, he's actually making her family. I am... Um, I had an interesting conversation with my kids yesterday. Every now and then we allot my kids, we give them permission every now and then to play a game called Minecraft. And in the game, you know, the, the kids absolutely love it. They're able to build and they're able to create because they're made in the image of God. God's a creator, so they like to create. That's why we like to create new things as people as well. We bear the image of God. And so I kind of get excited when my kids are being creative and they're building things. And so right now uh, they've got this whole thing worked out. And some of you, some of the kids and younger people can know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you older people, let me educate you on what, what kids can do nowadays. They, they, they each have their own little tablet, but they're all in the same world. So they're interacting with each other with their own screen. And my boys and my daughter now are, have, are building a village, okay? And so they, they've got this whole thing laid out. They've got a castle. Um, they've created some Avengers stuff. So... Apparently, there's like Thor's castle in this thing and just all kinds of fun, you know, pop culture stuff that they're into. And so I heard my kids last night. I don't, I don't know what kicked off the conversation. They said, you know what we need to build in our village? And so I'm listening, right? I'm not part of the conversation. I'm not manipulating them in any way. They said, we need to build a church. And I thought, oh, well, this will be interesting. So as they're going to bed, I said, I said, so listen, um, as somebody who is facilitating our church and leading our church, one of the questions that I like to ask people in general, especially those who aren't Christians, is just general impressions of a church first time. What's it like to step into a church if you've never come before? Or, or I really like to ask young people, if you could plant a church, what would it look like? And so I asked my kids, expecting ridiculous answers, Okay, when you build your church, what kind of church do you want to have? So I asked my oldest. He's eight years old. I said, okay, Peyton, what do you, uh, you're going to build a church? He said, yeah. I said, well, what would you like your church to have? Let's say you literally could lead your own church. What would you want to have? And he said this. Uh, without me leading him, he said, I would add an orphanage to our church so we could adopt more kids. And I thought, oh, my gosh, Allie is teaching you so well. <clears throat> so... Then, then there's my six-year-old, and if you know my six-year-old, his name is Jonah, and he speaks the first thing that comes to his mind. There's no filter, and so I thought, well, this will be real interesting 
and his response. I said, Jonah, what would, what, would your church, what would your church be? And the first thing he said was, oh, we would have horses that we could ride. And he was thinking, he was thinking um, uh, Minecraft has horses in it. So he's thinking Minecraft. I said, no, 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 not in the game. Like literally, if you could lead a church, what would you want your church to be like? And he said, I would want my church to be built in such a way that it, that it reached as many people for Jesus as possible. And I thought, man, Allie is really doing an incredible job. Now, I share that because, because listen, Ruth is asking this question, how have I found favor? How have I become part of the family of God? And, and there's a few answers here I want to give you, but I want you to understand the favor Boaz gives and how it plays out in our context. Can I, can I just share with you something that is kind of a dirty little secret inside the church? Now, the church notoriously has, has been built, I think to its detriment, has been built for just church people. That the church designs itself, attracts unto itself church people. So in, in essence, it becomes a place for just the church. Not the unchurched, not the saved. Now, I've got to be really careful with this. And if you have more questions on this, I'd, I'd be more than willing to have a longer conversation because I think it, it is a longer conversation. The church's primary role and job, and it's built within our vision statement, is to glorify God. That is what we're about. We want God to be glorified. Beyond anything else, we don't want just humanity glorified. We don't want just people's lives better. Those are all part of it. God is glorified in that, but we want him to be glorified. And once we tie into that and understand that, that, that it's all about God's glory, we know that God has specifically told us what it looks like to glorify himself. And that is to make disciples. And discipleship is somebody who is committed to following Jesus and making Jesus as a teacher. But what we forget sometimes is that when we, be, when we become a church just for church people, it, we actually put up boundaries and borders that can hinder unchurched people from ever becoming churched people. Okay, you, are you with me? So, for instance, there, there's a passage where, where essentially uh, in the epistles, in the New Testament, where it commands the followers, don't do anything that would make it difficult for people to come to Jesus Christ. You know what one of those things were? Jews were getting saved left and right. And as Jews were becoming saved, because they were Jewish people, guess who else started to get saved? Non-Jewish people. And so all of these, I could just imagine, if you, if you know where I'm going, you'll know what I'm talking about here. I can just imagine all of these individuals who, who didn't know Jesus, women and children specifically, were probably getting saved by the droves. Men, not so much. Want to know why? Because the Jewish, the Jewish, those who were being saved said, listen, if you're going to actually be a Christian and you're going to be a, a Jew, you've got to be a Jewish Christian. You've got to embrace Judaism. So listen, I understand you're a 40-year-old male and you're a, you're, you're a Greek or, or you're a Gentile of, of someone outside the Jewish faith. In order to be saved, you must be circumcised. So I just don't think a whole lot of guys were getting saved. Maybe internally, but not externally. And that, that's a great example. It's, and I don't mean to just take that particular verse and butcher it, and you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, but this is just for the Bible nerds out there, and say that that, that is the text that we use to reach non-Christians, but it is something for us to at least to at least look at and say, are there things in the church, are there things in our attitudes 
that are making it more difficult for people to come to Jesus Christ than are necessary. Now, I don't know if you understand this, but if you're a Christian this morning and you've been saved for probably more than five years, you know that you, you may not be fully aware that church has a particular culture that is very unlike the culture outside. And in many ways, that is a beautiful thing. In many ways, it's a great thing. There should be a level of grace and forgiveness and kindness and generosity that exists in here that do not exist outside the doors. But then we're not aware of all the things that we might be doing that might be making it difficult. Let me share with you an illustration, and I hope it's appropriate. Years ago, um, when I was in college, and I, I initially moved from Truckee, as soon as I turned 18 and I graduated high school, I was out of the house. And I moved to uh, Roseville, played football there for a little bit. I didn't find a church in Roseville, never went to church, uh, even though I had gone to church previously to that as a young man. And then, and then I moved to Reno, and my intention to move to Reno was to walk on and, and play football at UNR and, and get my education at UNR. And, and those of you who know the story know that I ended, up, I ended up moving to San Diego instead. But while I was in Reno, someone recommended to me, I was looking for a church, and this is the only church I'd ever known. So now you have to just, if you just remember my story, for those of you who know it, I grew up without Jesus in a drug-filled, alcohol-filled home. Parents got saved at 12. From 12 to 18, this is the only church I had ever known. This is it. And the church was smaller at the time. Truckee was smaller at the time. But that was my window into the gospel and the church experience. For all I knew, this is what every church looked like. And so someone said to me, I know of a perfect church for you in Reno, you got to go check it out. It's in Sparks, and the pastor's name was Maurice Washington. Some of you may remember him, some of you may not, um, but he was involved in some politics stuff in, in uh, Reno, Nevada area. And I walked in, and it was the church of about 125 people, and I did what a lot of visitors do. I, I attempted, I should say, to do what a lot of visitors do who've never been to church or never been outside of their church experience or their unchurched or their de-churched. And, and the, the typically, if you're, like, if you're visiting this morning, there's a good chance that if you're new and you're experiencing things, not to put you on the spot, there's a good chance you're in the back third of the room. And you're hoping, by God's grace, nobody calls upon you, nobody looks at you, and you're hoping that this thing ends on time. You're hoping it ends on time because you've got to eat. And this, I don't know this guy. I don't know these people. I don't want to be talked to. And that way you can sneak out and get out of here. And can, I just, can I just acknowledge that I understand that it's hard? And can I just acknowledge if that's you, I get it. And can I just also say, I'm really glad you're here. I'm super happy that you're here. And I, to take you back into my experience, here I am in this church of 125 people. My only experience has been Sierra Bible Church. I walk in hoping to find some anonymity, only to find out it is a full-on African-American church, and I'm the only white boy there. Do you think I found any anonymity? I didn't. I was, it was, do you think I found a brand new worship experience? I did. I've never had so many people touch me in one service. I, I never felt so loved. I'd never been in a service that long. Everything about it was totally different than the culture that you have, that we have in here. It just, it wasn't wrong in many ways, in many ways, I started, I went every week. I went back every single week. And that's why I started to find my pastoral calling. I went to 
Pastor Maurice Washington, I said, I feel like I'm being called to be a pastor. And it was the first time that uh, uh, someone who, who had been in ministry longer than I had looked at me and said, that's great, but just know it's lonely. Just what Jeff said. That was his first words to me. That's great, just know it's lonely. I met with him a little while after that, went to that church, ended up moving to San Diego, and obviously the rest is history. Not that long ago, about a year ago, all oh, this is going to make sense to you here in a moment. About a year ago, I contacted James Gordon. James Gordon's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's an African-American gentleman, loved him to death. We've known each other for years. He's probably my best friend. And he lives in Palm Springs, and we had a couple in the church, an Asian couple in the church, and they were challenging our leadership a little bit uh, about a year ago and just challenging us in regards to some of our theology, some of our doctrine, some of the way we play things out, but, but just challenging us in regards to what it, what it looks like and feels like to embrace the outsider, to embrace someone who is in the minority, and to help them feel welcome, to help them kind of become part of, you know, what is in Truckee we know is 90-something percent Caucasian. What does it look like to care for the minority? And so I, I, whenever I hear things like that, I try to be teachable. I try not to be def- defensive. I try not to say, well, this is who we are. This is the way we've always done things, and this is the way that we do church. And so I called James and said, hey, listen, man, I'm coming down to Palm Springs. I want you to find me the most ethnic church that you can find. I went back to, you know, over 20 years ago when I was that one little white guy in the church and said, find me a church like that. I want to feel awkward. That's what I told him. And uh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so I'm down there, and he says, I can't get anything to land on a Sunday, he says, but I've got a barbecue. And I want you to come down to this barbecue, and I want you to hang out with some of my folk. And I was like, okay, great, I'll do it. And so it's a barbecue, so I dressed like it was a barbecue. And it's Palm Springs. It's hot in Palm Springs. I don't know if you know this. It's really hot. It's just a couple miles above hell. And so the temperature resides just above that. And, <clears throat> and I had a tank top on, and I had shorts on, and I had sandals on. Now, those of you who, who know me know me. You know that I basically have tattoos coming out of all of those places. And, uh, and so here I am. I'm walking into this barbecue, which happens to be at a church, which I found interesting. And as I'm walking through the doors... I'm greeted with the reality that I'm at a memorial service, not a barbecue. I mean, there was a barbecue there, but it was for the memorial. And not only was it a barbecue service, a memorial service, it was an African-American one. And if you know this about our brothers and sisters who are African-American, they know how to dress for church. I wasn't dressed for church. And I walked into the room with 200 of these individuals. Literally, literally, you could have hear, heard a pin drop. And it felt like for me, it felt like for me, everybody was looking at the pale boy who needed a tan. Because I'm, I'm not just white. I'm like butt cheek white. And they're all staring at me. And I, I look over across the room, and there's James. And I went, And James is in the corner going. So can I, I want to make a correlation that I think is really important than it does tie in to the text. When someone walks into our church, do you expect them and do you treat them 
in a way that makes them feel like they're not yet accepted. They're the outsider. See, I'm pushing a little bit because, because see, see, what Boaz has done is what Jesus does. Boaz, if you remember, he looked in the field and he asked the workers. He noticed. So let's just be honest. It's okay for the worker of the field to notice that somebody's in the field that hasn't been in the field, and that person happens to be an outsider. He recognizes its reality. But then his response, his response is not, listen, listen, Ruth, if you're, if you're going to be accepted into this family, you've got to start acting more like an Israelite. You better start acting more like a Christian. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he favors her and he feeds her. Isn't that good? He, he gives her incredible favor. And her response, she's so blessed by Boaz's response, who's showing us the reality of Jesus Christ, she then says, why have I found favor? I mean, that's when you really know you're doing evangelism well. That's how you know you're really telling people about who Jesus is, is when somebody who's on the outside who doesn't know Jesus steps into the church or steps into your own personal relationship and they're blown away by the favor that you give them. That they just can't understand it. They're, they're not over there going, you know what? You're constantly trying to change me. You're constantly trying to make me more like you. Why are you doing that? People get frustrated with that. They put their wall up. No, you love people. You love them into the kingdom of God. And you accept them right where they're at. And the reason that you have to do that is you have to come back to the place that, that Ruth is, and you have to put yourself in Ruth, Ruth's seat. You all, all of us together this morning, if you've made a proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ, should be looking heavenward and asking God the question, why have I found favor from you? So you can't give favor to somebody if you don't recognize how unworthy you are of favor. And then how good God is to you. If you would, you could turn, if you want with me, to Romans chapter 8. Because Boaz gives the response. He, he gives the reason. He says, he says you want to know why I favored you? It's in verse 11. He says, I know you. I know what you've done. See, what, <clears throat> what Boaz has the ability to do, which God has the ability to do, which we should also be growing in our ability to do, is to begin to look inward into people's hearts and to make, make a kind of gospel-centered, grace-centered judgment towards people that helps them become part of the family of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 starts out with some incredible language. That incredible language is this, and it's something we celebrate as Christians. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? There's no more condemning for you because Jesus has lifted your guilt. Verse 15 says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. Do you hear it? You received the spirit of adoption. You were an orphan. Just like my young son says, and he, he's getting something about the gospel that sometimes Christians don't get. How beautiful would it be if the church had the ability to have a facility that brought children who were unfathered and unmothered into a place where they could receive fathering and mothering. And then my other son. What if the whole church was built in a way where its goal wasn't just to disciple those who are already here, but its goal was also to reach those who don't know him? He goes on and says, verse 17, and then, if you're children of God, now that you're adopted, you're heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Verse 27. And he who searches the hearts, just as Boaz is searching the heart of Ruth, <clears throat> and who searches the hearts knows what is the mind and the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's how I started out my message. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I want you to see something that's really interesting here. First of all, he says that God looked into your heart. He saw something about you, and he put his affection upon you. The way we talk about this, and Wayne touched upon it last week, is in regards to your salvation, it is a completely passive act. What that means is it's passive on your end, and it's 100% active on God's end. Your new birth, your regeneration was birthed in heaven. God planned it. He predestined it. And he elected you. That word predestined literally means to predetermine beforehand. I've had people actually say to me, oh, oh, you're that church that teaches predestination. I go, yeah, because it's in Romans 8 and it's in Ephesians 1, as well as Romans 9, as well as the entire Old Testament where God chooses the people of Israel. And when he chooses the people of Israel, he says to them, I didn't choose you because you were great in number. No, because you weren't. You're the least of all people. Essentially, if you read the text, God's like, you're really not that attractive. You really don't have any money. You're not popular. You actually are kind of a pain in the butt. But I chose you because I loved you. This is the idea in regards to becoming part of the family of God. The first step of understanding what it takes to become part of the family of God is to be loved by God, not because of anything that you have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done to make you part of the family of God. Now, if the church can understand that, it takes away all the pretenses. We can very easily, in understanding what I just shared there, if you can grasp it and comprehend it, you under, then understand what it means to be a church that doesn't just reach church people, but reaches unchurched people. And that first step is for people to come into the room, not be judged, and not be pushed to be something that they just simply aren't yet. Because can we be honest? Nobody's that yet anyways. None of you have made it. And if you think you've made it, please set up a counseling appointment with one of the pastors because you are in deep sin. Pride is the same thing that sent the devil to hell itself. Yeah? Yeah, amen right now and amen through the week, please. God, let, let me, <clears throat> helping us understand that God desires us to, to just re-kind re of establish everything. And here's why this is important. I've had these conversations, and, and if, if you've been one of those people um, in regards to these conversations, please forgive me for using you as an example. But, um, and, and, and let me say this before I say what I'm about to say. I am always willing and open to have a further dialogue on this stuff. That some of the stuff I'm going to say might, might sound to you uh, a little, it might bring some tension to you. Some pet peeves of mine as a pastor that I've come to learn over the years, things like this. Well, you know, we've got to treat the sanctuary of God with a particular awe and reverence. And so when we come into the sanctuary of God, we end up with all kinds of little rules and things that church people love, right? Like, don't wear hats in, in church. 
don't wear sandals, Brad. Can I, can, and I know, I know, you know what, and I, I know this is going to be offensive for some of you, but for those of you who don't know Jesus, this is going to be so liberating for you. Do you know this isn't the sanctuary of God? To call it the sanctuary of God is to be unbiblical. You know what this is? This is a room. That's it. It's a room. It's, this, it's, it's no more special than the room at my house. Or the room at your house. It's a room. It's a building. It's when Jesus says, and this is why it's offensive, because it was offensive in Jesus' day, just as offensive as it is today. You know what I'm going to do, Jesus says to this temple, your sanctuary? I'm going to destroy it. And then I'm going to raise it up again in three days. And the Pharisees are like, what? He's going to destroy the temple? That's blasphemy. He's going to raise it up? He can't do that. But what he meant was upon the cross... He was going to build a new sanctuary, the true holy of holies, which is inside your heart. You see, Boaz is looking inside Ruth, and he sees her heart. And the church would benefit itself if we would stop. Just stop. Please, for the love of God, just stop judging the outward experience, the outward thing. And start looking at the inward part of the heart. Try to see what's inside of people, which is, which is at its basic form. Every single human being has been made in the Imago Dei, which is the Latin for the image of God. So when someone walks into church, we don't have to pull them off to the side and say, excuse me, take the hat off. Because we don't even see the hat because we don't care. Because God doesn't care. I remember years ago in San Diego, sunny San Diego. I'm just waiting for summer to come. And the text, the text, in my opinion, I said this in the first service, the text, like, deserves a sunnier day than today. Because it's, it's the harvest time. Naomi's coming out of the famine, and she's entering into the goodness of God. She's finding favor from God. And, and I remember being in San Diego, sunny San Diego, warm San Diego, and, and a young gal came to the church for the very first time. Unchurched gal. Has never been to church. Someone actually invited her, and she came, and she was wearing something that was a little risque. It was just a little bit too much skin. And one of the leaders, a good-intentioned church leader, a churchy person, walked up to the young lady, informed her of what she was wearing was inappropriate, and that she needed to go home and change. Do you think that young gal ever came back to church? Because here's why. This, she already heard a sermon before she heard the sermon. And that sermon was that everything on the outside needed to be washed and looked a certain way in order for you to be a part of the inside. Can we just admit the dirty little secret? We have a culture here that isn't necessarily comfortable for people that we proclaim that truly want to know Jesus Christ. Can we admit that maybe, maybe as part of the takeaway of this, that we, we need to be like Boaz and we need to see what's inside the person and that they're made in the Imago Dei and we need to favor them and we need to love them and we need to bless them. You know, when you invite someone over to your house, what's the first thing you do? You clean it. I asked that question. There was a gal in the front row. And she went, no, I don't. No, nope. don't care. And, and here's why I say that, because, because if you're part of our church family, you know what? Our building should matter in how it looks. 
Because we're preaching sermons to the lost before they walk into this room. As they walk through the parking lot and they walk up the stairs, we've already preached a million different little sermons about who Jesus is and about the way that we think about God. And then finally, finally, they hear me. You know, the best way I've heard it explained is this. We should do everything in our possible to not be offensive to the newcomer as they walk in. I know this sounds like seeker-sensitive stuff, but hear me out before, before you start throwing your Bible at me. We should do everything in our, our power possible to not offend people so that way by the time they get here and they sit in the seat, I can do the job of being offensive. Because if you offend them before they sit in the seat, they've already put the wall up. But if you've already welcomed them as a guest and you've already loved them as a good Christian for who they are, they're going to be more willing to hear the offensive things that I'm going to say from the Bible. Do you, are you with me a little bit? Again, it's a further discussion, but let me, let me just share a few things here and we'll worship. Notice what Boaz sees within Ruth. And this is some of the further steps. Once you've found the favor of God and the goodness of God, you've been brought into Bethlehem. And Boaz says, I see a few things here. There's four I think I have. Number one, I see what you have done. Specifically, I've seen what you've done for Naomi. Specifically, I've seen your service. I've seen that you're willing to, to work hard and you're willing to sacrifice because, because in salvation it's passive, but sanctification, which is the big million-dollar word for growth in God, it's active. You've got to do something. As James says, Faith without works is dead. There's something required of you. And if you take a look at Ruth, what does she do, man? She rolls up her sleeves. She gets into the field, and she works really hard so that she can provide for her family. A couple times in the text, it tells us that she literally worked from morning until evening, only to break just for a little while to eat. She worked hard. Can, can I just encourage you, if you're a Christian here this morning, that it is not sufficient just to believe. You have to act upon that which is shared. Because if you don't, your faith is dead. It's not real faith. It's not living in active faith. So he says to her, you know why you found favor? Because I know you. I've heard about you. And what I've heard specifically is you're a person of service. You know, that's what a lost community needs, needs to see within Seer Bible Church. And anyone else in our Truckee community that's a Christian, they need to see us serving the greater good of the Tahoe area. Loving people. Caring for people. Feeding our teachers doing anything possible we can to serve the people of Truckee. Number two, I saw what you left behind. Literally, if you, if you remember, she, she's been worshiping the God of Chemosh, the same God that her mom worshiped and that her dad worshiped and that her grandpa worshiped and that her great-grandpa worshiped and so on and so forth. Generation of false worship after generation of false worship. And he says, I see that you've been willing to leave behind your old lifestyle and you've been willing to sacrifice for a new lifestyle to work unto God. So you have, number one, you have a willingness to serve, but then you have a willingness to sacrifice, to rearrange your whole life for the glory of God. Remember I shared that's the first lens. We've got to glorify the Lord. And if you're a person who's fell, fallen in love with Jesus because Jesus fell in love with you, you will rearrange the way you, that you do life completely. You'll change the way you spend your money. you change the way you use your home. change the way you use your cars. change the way that you parent. You change everything for the glory of God. Everything, because you want Christ to be magnified. Number three, he says, and I saw that you came to a people you did not know. Verse 11. He says, not only did you leave behind a people, but then you came to a whole new group of people. This is kind of the whole encouragement of what I'm sharing for those who are new here. 
If you're new here and you've just stepped into this realm, I acknowledge it's weird. We've got some weird people who are part of Sierra Bible Church, and we're okay with that. We're okay with it. And we're okay with adding a few more weirdos to the group. So if you feel like, you know, man, this is a bunch of weird people, and I'm not normal, and, and I, if, in order for me to be part of the church family, I'm going to have to leave behind the old family on the old life and integrate into a new family. And can I just share with you that I think and I believe, not only because someone like Ruth is telling us, but also because we have a whole group of people in the room who would tell you also that when you leave behind the old lifestyle, the sinful lifestyle, the unglorifying God lifestyle, the glorifying of self lifestyle, and you enter into the new lifestyle, there's far more joy and happiness here than there is out there. It's just better. Can I just tell you this morning, if that's you, just take the leap and come on into the family of God and, and deal and work through some of the weird nuance that is Christianity and discover the goodness of Jesus and the path that you're in. And then lastly, he says this, verse 12, you found refuge in God. He recognizes it. Ruth, the reason I'm giving you favor is because you found refuge in God. And re- the word refuge here literally means to hide ourselves in God. It's to place ourselves under the wings of Jesus Christ. This is what makes the family of God work. We see each other through the lens of being hidden in the refuge and the safety of God. Let me give you a couple takeaways and we'll sing. Same challenges I gave the first gathering. Number one, I, w- I, want, I want you to do me a favor. If you would, please enter in to the ministry of Sarah Bible Church with me in what I'm about to say. Number one, would you join me in praying specifically that our church would be a church that God would use to bring lost people into the family of God? Now, I'm going to wait until you write that down because you're going to forget. Because it's a... I, uh, Right? Faith without works is dead. It's not sufficient for you as a Christian to leave this room and not know what to do next. What's the next step? What's the handle? What do I do? Pray. Pray that God would use our church. And I'm not telling you to figure this out because I don't have it figured out totally. I'm still working it out. I'm still trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian for crying out loud. I'm still working it out. But I'm willing to pray. I know that's part of God's provision. When we pray, God does stuff. Pray. Ask God, Lord, would you make Sierra Bible Church a church? that sees lost people come to salvation. But you know what else? Here's number two. You can't just pray. Because I just said, when I said pray, there's probably a good chance that some of you in the room had a few names of people that you could pray for. Invite them. Who is it that you could invite to come? And you can tell them. Use the language I used this morning. You know what? You're going to feel like an outsider. But our pastor is going to be really happy you're there. You should come and see. It's cool because after the service, a gentleman came up to me after the service and he said, you know what, man, I'm trying. I've got four people I'm praying for right now. And he listed them by name. Boom, 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 boom. And he says every Saturday they text me and say, what time service again? And they don't come. They haven't come yet. And he goes, I'm about to just go pick them up, bring them to church. Wouldn't it be great if, not because we're programmy or manipulative or anything like that. If we just, you know what, 
We're for you. We want God to bless you. We want your life to be better than it is right now. Why don't you come and see what Jesus is all about? Wouldn't it be beautiful to see more people come to saving faith? And can I just caution you, churchy people that are out in the room this morning, churchy people that are listening in on the podcast, and I just challenge you, when you get non-saved people and they begin to get saved, it gets messy. You know what it's like to have a conversation with a couple that's been married for 30 years and their whole marriage has been based upon alcoholism and they come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Do you know what it's like for a woman in her 30s to get saved, come home and tell her family that she's saved, and to tell her husband that she's saved? That was my life. You found what? Who's Jesus? It gets messy, but it's beautiful. And it's what glorifies God to see people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus is a beautiful thing and it's worth living for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good to us in more ways than we could think or imagine. I pray, Lord, as we Sing now that we would respond, quite possibly, Lord, right now, in prayer. Lord, would you make us a church that reaches lost people? Lord, would you impress upon us, make us courageous, and empower us to invite people? And may we be a part of your saving grace as you lay your affection upon those whom you've chosen to lay your affection upon. We trust you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.